This week, my wife spent some time talking to our children about dreams. And one of our boys told her, Mom, I keep having the same dream. It's just me and dad against the world. <laughs> and I don't know what that means, but I like it. I asked our church members to write me this week and share some of their weird and unusual dreams. I'm not going to share any specific names, but these are those dreams. One lady said, I often dream that I'm riding in a car with my late mother and father. It's surreal, like they are there. What's the conversation? Well, my parents are calling me out on my sin. From the grave, my parents are keeping me in check. And this dream actually makes sense when you know the lady because her dad was a pastor. One guy had a dream in our church that, a, that an eagle made a nest in his hair. And he couldn't help but to feel the weight and responsibility of protecting this majestic creature by walking with care and perfect balance. Now here's another one some of you, actually all of you will know. I'm not going to say his name, but it starts with an M and ends with an Matthew. He said, this dream was right before Allison and I got married. I dreamt we were standing at the altar about to say I do when suddenly Allison's mom popped up out of her seat wearing a massive Kentucky Derby hat. Her and another woman started dancing down the aisle to African tribal music while playing tambourines. <laughs> Here's another one from our church people. I dreamt that I was riding dirt bikes with some friends when out of nowhere my dog flew by me on a dirt bike with a helmet. I tried chasing her down, but she drove onto, not into the ocean. Suddenly a massive tsunami appeared and she used it as a ramp like Evil Knievel. She then disappeared into the storm. <laughs> After reading all of your dreams, honestly, I wondered if some of you were tripping on acid, but I started questioning a lot of things. Your salvation, my effectiveness as a pastor. These are just the wildest things I had ever heard. You guys, had, you guys had so many crazy dreams that I wanted to find out what they meant and how your brains could even come up with something like that. So since I'm a pastor and only work on Sundays, I had a lot of spare time on my hands. So I decided to do a deep dive in research on dreams and what they mean. And here's what these reliable Google searches revealed to me. Some of you dreamed about falling off of a cliff or into a volcano or out of a plane. Apparently 53% of people have this recurring dream. And this means that there's something in your life that you can't control and it really concerns you. So just for, just for kicks and giggles, I decided to interpret some of your dreams on my own. I didn't consult a book or a crowdsource website or a psychologist. We, we, we have one in our church, but I didn't, I didn't call him. We're in the middle of a culture where being loud and controversial is so much more important than being factually accurate. So on that note, these are your dreams and my interpretations. Many of you had a dream that you were going back to school. You said, what, what does that mean? I think it means you feel unprepared for life. And you're finally realizing all those liberal arts classes were a big waste of your time. Some of you had dreams that your teeth were falling out. That's, that's a unique one. My take is your, your subconscious is telling you it's been three years since you've been to the dentist and it's time. It's time for a checkup. One of you ladies had a dream that your diamond fell out of your ring. I think that means that, that your husband's about to buy you a bigger diamond. Mother's Day is coming up. By the way, if you, if you ever dream that you have to go to the bathroom, that means 
that you have to go to the bathroom. This is not a joke. You need to get up and go now. It's not a dream. It's real. I speak from experience. My wife, as a child, used to have a recurring dream that her father was attacked by wolves, or her church was attacked by wolves, and, and one of the wolves bit her father's leg. So naturally, I'm spiritualizing this thing and saying, you were really fearing false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing, penetrating your, your church and affecting your dad's theology. But she's like, no, fake news. I'm just scared of wolves. Uh, wives, how many of you, you've been mad at your husband for something he did in your dream? <laughs> I'll tell you what I tell my wife. That dream is delivered by Satan. Your husband is a, is a good man. Don't listen. The practice of assigning meaning to dreams is not new. It's ancient. I thought about tracing the history from Egypt to Greece to the Roman Empire and show you how each gave different meanings to the same dreams. But the right side of my brain won out, so I decided to go with um, comedy, our dreams from church members. Just as some of our church members wrote me to explain their weird and unusual dreams... In our text, Nebuchadnezzar writes us to explain his weird and unusual dream. So listen as he begins recounting the dream in verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. So let's stop there and begin slowly walking through verse 4. Notice the first word, I. This is one of the most unique chapters in the Old Testament because it's an official autobiographical document. Tucked away in Daniel's inspired record is a copy of this letter prepared by Nebuchadnezzar. Let's move on to the next word. I, Nebuchadnezzar. Now who is this guy and how does his dream impact you? Nebuchadnezzar lived 2,600 years ago. He had this dream 600 years before Jesus walked on earth. In life, he clawed his way to the top from being a, a, a soldier boy to, as some say, the greatest military general in history. He had a mind for war. After defeating Egypt, he continued his expansion plan through the Middle East, and Jerusalem was one of his first targets. He aimed, fired, bullseye. During three separate sieges, he destroyed God's temple, burned the city, and marched more than 10,000 residents 900 miles back to Babylon. They were all victims of human trafficking. But a few select boys were castrated and made to work in the king's palace. Nebuchadnezzar has now been king for 40 years, and he's built a massive empire. It, stretched from, it stretches from what is today called Egypt to western Iran, and from modern Turkey to... Saudi Arabia. The kingdom encompassed many different cultures and languages. Nebuchadnezzar's done what no ruler in human history had ever done. Built a world empire. King Nebi, King Nebi was a boss. He was a cruel man. On one occasion, he captured, captured Judah's king Zedekiah, chained his hands behind his back, made him drop to his knees, and then murdered his two boys in front of his eyes. And then plucked out King Zedekiah's eyes so that the last thing he would ever remember seeing was the murder of his sons. Nebuchadnezzar was the original Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Emperor Hirohato, Pol Pot, Mao Zedong. He was an evil man. 
Verse 4 continues, I was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. When King Nebi mentions that he was at ease, he doesn't mean he was kicked back, lounging in his sandals and, and enjoying a drink. He means I was at ease in the sense of peace, prosperity, and tranquility in his empire. There were no fears. The word prospering here is also translated flourishing in other versions. In the Hebrew, it literally reads this. I was at ease in my house and growing green. Now that doesn't mean King Nebuchadnezzar started planting trees and recycling aluminum cans. It meant he had great green growing wealth and prestige and power. He possessed power that maybe only half a dozen people who've ever lived have experienced. Historically, we know that he built skyscrapers. Buildings so high that they scraped the sky. He renovated and restored over a dozen temples. He built a brand new palace. Outside of his window of his palace, there was a 400-foot waterfall. He built hanging gardens as a gift for one of his wives. And it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He's the most powerful man on earth without a care in the world. He's the one guy in the world who never has to worry about being fired. Or paying taxes. The only thing he has to worry about is another army. But wait, what army? He's the absolute monarch of the world. The only thing King Nebi couldn't control was his dreams. In chapter 2, he had this recurring dream about a monster which was worse than anything in a horror movie. It was scarier than Michael Myers, Jason, Freddy Krueger, Hannibal Lecter. And one of his, his young teen whipping boys, Daniel, interpreted it for him. Now fast forward. 37 years later, King Nebi pillows his hard head onto a soft duck feather pillow. And something happens that hasn't happened in 13,505 nights. He has another dream. He's awakened in a panic, fearful. Our text today actually has five scenes. Scene number one is in the king's palace. Scene number two is in the king's throne room. Scene number three is 12 months later. That's in the king's chill room. Scene number four is in the king's outdoor room. And scene number five is in the king's press room. Currently, we're leaving scene number one and we're headed into scene number two. Notice verse six. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Now, the king wasn't going to settle for some random guy to give the interpretation. He wasn't saying, Kyle, what is, what's the interpretation of my dream? No, the king asked for the elite, the intellectuals, the mystics, to report to his throne room. And no doubt these guys were, were trembling the last time they were brought before the king and could not interpret his dream, he put out a hit on all of them. But this scene is very different from 37 years ago in chapter 2. See, then Nebuchadnezzar remembered the dream, but he wouldn't tell the wise men. In our text, he details the entire account of this nightmare to the wise men. And we're left asking the question, what is so terrifying about this dream? Well, the narrator keeps us in suspense. The wise men receive the details, but we, the readers, do not. Notice as the narrative continues in verse 7. 
Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in. And I told them the dream. But they could not make known to me its interpretation. None of the wise men of Babylon could make heads or tails of the dream. They thought the king was uh, tripping on acid. King Nebi now must call in the big guns. And that happens in verse 8. At last, Daniel came in before me. Now let's stop there. The last time this happened, Daniel was a scrawny, scared, young teen POW. An apprentice wise man. Now, Daniel is at least 50 years old. He's the CEO of the wise men. He's been working for the king a long time. Yet still, after 37 years of Daniel being around the palace, King Nebi is still worshiping Bel. Notice as he recounts the story in verse 8. He who was named Belshazzar, after the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. So Nebi at this point, he's still polytheistic. He's still believing in many gods. And finally in verse 10, we are led into the details of the dream. So I'm going to read here at length the details of the dream. Verse 10. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth. And its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven. It was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree. Lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruits. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Now let's have a hard stop there. You may say, Kyle, what is so bad about this dream? I mean, sounds like some simple tree trimming going on. Doesn't sound that scary to me. But that's not the real nightmare part. The real nightmare starts when the language of the dream changes the pronouns from general to personal. Notice verse 15b. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's. And let a beast mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. This isn't talking about a tree anymore. The image suddenly shifts from a tree to be brought down to a man to be cut down. After hearing the dream, Daniel in verse 19 is frightened. Which is surprising to me because it seems like nothing scares this guy. You may remember he refused to eat the king's meat even though he could die for not shoveling it in his gullet. He was willing to stand up for his God when the other POWs would not. So what was it about this dream that so frightened Daniel? Well, he knows. He knows the meaning of the dream, and it's terrible news for the king. Daniel is not an unsympathetic figure. He cared enough for the monarch to have compassion on him and fear for his future. 
And it's an instructive tone for all of us. He holds no pleasure in relaying the horrifying message. Oh, king, I love you. I wish this didn't apply to you. I wish it applied to your enemies. Daniel spent years with the king. He genuinely cared for him. This is not what I would have said to the king. I would have told the king, Oh, king, you are about to get slapped around. You castrated me. You destroyed my temple. You tried to cook my friends in a furnace. Oh, I'm going to enjoy interpreting this dream for you. That's not what he said. The king seems to share the feelings of, of care to Daniel as well. Daniel, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. There's a mutual manly affection. And then it happened. Like Moses before Pharaoh, Elijah before Ahab, John the Baptist before Herod, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar not what he wants to hear, but what he needs to hear. Daniel doesn't say, I'm sorry, king. You know, I can't interpret the dream. I've actually retired from dream interpretation. Now I play bridge and I yell at, you know, neighborhood kids when they step on my lawn. No, none of that. He gives the hard truth. He gives the interpretation. Now let me give you a a chart. We have the dream and we have the interpretation. The dream in verse 20 was of a tree. The huge tree that reached to heaven and filled the whole earth represented the king. His royal majesty reaches sky high. His sovereign rule stretches to the four corners of the earth. It represents King Nebi. Trees were commonly known in ancient times to symbolize great rulers. Ezekiel refers to Pharaoh as a tree. You have a similar reference to an Amorite ruler in Amos 2 as well. What about verse 21? It talks about the beautiful leaves and the abundant fruit. What what does that represent? The beast of the field found shade under the tree. The birds built homes. Everyone ate and survived off of the tree. Well, that represents the greatness of King Nebi's kingdom. And this is a really ironic metaphor given the recent discoveries. Archaeologists have uncovered inscriptions by Nebuchadnezzar where he referred to himself as a tree under whose shelter everyone finds safety. So no wonder the king is frightened. He had identified himself as a great tree. And now he receives a dream of a great tree being cut down. This great tree with many nations and languages. And did not many nations and languages find shelter under Nebuchadnezzar's mighty kingdom? Reynolds Showers in his commentary on Daniel points out recent findings that Nebuchadnezzar had a thing for the power of trees. like Like a fetish, if you would. In fact, on one of his journeys through Lebanon, one discovery shows that Nebuchadnezzar actually chopped down one of those massive trees himself. And he was so proud of himself that he had a picture of himself cutting that tree down, carved in stone. Most scholars identify the watcher in the text who cuts down this massive worldwide tree as a heavenly creature, an angel, watcher pointing to the fact that he does not rest or sleep. He's always watching. In verse 23, we see the instruction to leave the stump and the roots and protect it by surrounding it with a band of iron and bronze. And you're seeing on your chart that that's interpreted for you in verses 25 and 26, meaning I'll keep you alive. I'll drive you from among men. Your dwelling will be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat the grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven. But 
Your kingdom will still be there for you after you learn that it is God who runs things. And we have this interesting note at the end about seven periods of time. So what does this mean? Does this mean Nebuchadnezzar is going to be acting like an animal for seven days, seven months, seven years? We don't know. Personally, if, if it was, I think if it was intended for us to know, we would have a specific period of time mentioned. In the chapter, there's other date-specific things. Like in verse 29, there's a date-specific comment. But here it's not date-specific. It doesn't say days, months, or years. It says period. Now, we only know that however long this is, it will be the perfect amount of time to get his attention. We know that God's humbling is perfect. And notice Daniel's closing plea in verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. So Daniel has moved now from prophesying to preaching. Although in the truest sense, Daniel wasn't a prophet as as we think of it. This is a conditional message. I want you to notice that. Growing up, some of you had a dad that said, we can do this the hard way. Or we can do this the easy way. Well, this is what's happening in the text. We can do this the hard way or the easy way. The the easy way is to repent of two main sins. Repent of, of the sin of thinking yourself as great. Don't fall prey to that temptation to think of yourself like a god. Secondly, the second sin was oppressing the poor and the helpless. So we've seen scene one and scene two. We now move on to scene three. This is 12 months later in the king's chill room. Chronologically, there's a gap of 12 months, but narratively, as you see in the text, there's, there's no time. Notice verse 29. At the end of 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. Roofs were flat in the Near East and therefore provided a hangout space, a chill room, if you would. King Nebi stood on that roof and he looked out over the processional avenue which he himself had paved with limestone and decorated with lion figures. He drank in all the beauty and strength of his capital city. He's singing DJ Khaled. All I do is win, 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 no matter what. When I was younger, growing up in North Carolina, like most boys in the South, I watched wrestling. If you're classy, you've probably never heard of a wrestler named Ric Flair. But he used to say all the time, I'm styling, profiling, limousine riding, jet flying, wheeling, dealing. And I won't mention the rest. But, but he also had the strut, the Ric Flair strut. And I wanted to mimic it for you, but my wife says that that would be inappropriate. King Nebi, what is he doing on the rooftop? He is doing the Ric Flair strut. This is not a humble brag. Verse 30, he's saying, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And from a human standpoint, Nebuchadnezzar had every reason to believe his own press releases. Most of the bricks that are recovered from ancient Babylon located in modern-day Iraq, they have stamped on them the inscription, I am Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He built it. He's on top of the palace and frankly, he's on top of the world. He's proud, arrogant, inflated, bloated. He's like a puffer fish. He forgot 
Every one of those bricks were made from mud, just like him. He mistook God's handiwork for his own. This little creature from the dirt is bragging about his accomplishments. That's like, that's like you building a little, a little Lego house and stepping back and then bragging on the little Lego house. Meanwhile, you're standing in Times Square in the shadows of New York City's billion-dollar high-rises. That's, that's like during a halftime show of an NBA game, you, you dunk on a Fisher-Price three-foot basketball goal. And then you look at LeBron James, and then you start pushing down the world like this. King Nebi, you silly little human. He's looking down. But the problem with looking down is you cannot see what's above you. And that leads us to scene four. In the king's outdoor room. Notice verse 31. There's a divine thunderclap. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. This is the Old Testament version of YouTube sports videos of people celebrating way too early. He should have been singing our theme song for our building project over here. The song that says, Should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survive, unless the Lord does raise the house in vain its builders strive. All glory be to Christ our King, all glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing, all glory be to Christ. Nothing exists. For anyone's exclusive glory. The narrative continues in verse 33. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Till his hair grew, I like this, as long as eagle's feathers. And his nails were like bird's claws. Sinclair Ferguson is is spot on when he says... The one who refused to honor God's glory loses his own glory. Refusing to share what he has with the poor, he becomes poorer than the poor. He becomes outwardly what his heart has been spiritually and inwardly. Bestial. The superhuman becomes subhuman. Now, some pastors have called this lycanthropy. Barring from the Latin word for wolf, or bonanthropy, barring from the Latin for ox, anthropy from man. So you've got wolf man or ox man. Others have said this was zoanthropy, a rare delusional disorder in which a person believes they are an animal and they will frequently walk around using animal like behaviors, walking on all fours, eating grass, communicating through grunts. And commentators are really all over the place trying to figure out what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And just my own observations is pastors talking about medical things that they have no idea what it is. And, and, and with my medical knowledge, this is what I would say. He went cray-cray. I mean, he has underwear outside of his pants. He's wearing a tinfoil hat. In an age with no mental hospitals or psychiatric wards, the king is simply driven from human society. He lives outdoors with the animals, and there, like cattle, he eats grass. His body exposed to the elements, the dew. His hair looks like some of yours do during COVID-19 because you can't get a haircut. Long and matted like eagle's feathers. 
This man is deranged. He's stricken with madness. And it moves us to scene five. This is in the king's press room. Notice verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom, not talking about his own kingdom anymore, his kingdom endures from generation to generation. So sometime between verse 33 and verse 34, crazy Nebi returns back to the palace as King Nebi. And, and this is even wilder than some of your dreams. God turned the heart of the nation to seek Nebuchadnezzar again. In verse 36, the generals are in the Oval Office and they say, hey, let's just... Let's bring King Nebuchadnezzar back. And the other guy's like, that's a great idea. And another one chimes in, where is he? Another one says, last I saw, he was eating grass on the White House lawn. I mean, you couldn't get your job back at the dollar store if this happened to you. Much less your job as the king of an empire. I don't know how it went down. But he was given back his mind and his kingdom. And you may have noticed that I skipped the, four ver- the first four verses of this chapter. And I did that because I wanted to wait until this moment to reveal to you that this entire chapter is an open letter mailed to the nations. Nebuchadnezzar takes off his storyteller's hat and he picks up his first person hat at the end. He's giving a State of the Union address. This is his press room. He's telling the nation why he is now serving the God of this little small conquered nation. The most powerful person in the world worshiping a god of a tiny little nation he defeated. This this is very unusual. And it's even more unusual that King Nebuchadnezzar doesn't question God's punishment. Notice verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Nebuchadnezzar after literally being an animal, he does not ask the question, what have you done? King Nebuchadnezzar loved someone he had every reason to hate. This is a mark of true repentance. Because repentance doesn't say, Lord, you've been hard on me. Lord, you've been unfair to me. No, repentance always recognizes that God has done exactly what is right and exactly what is good. He comes to the point where he recognizes what I call the Godship of God, the otherness of God. Now, I want to answer six questions from the text. I've only preached three times in the last seven Sundays, so excuse excuse me if this lasts four or five hours. We're going to have a ladies' panel here in a little bit, and I know they're going to talk four or five hours. Just view this as like an entire Sunday of worshiping the Lord at home. All right. Question number one. What does this text reveal about my current dreams? What does this text teach me about my current dreams? Are you ready for this? Speak. Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. I, I, I don't know why you dream some of the things you dream. I think most crazy dreams can be traced back to the TV show you were watching before you went to bed or the mound of red meat you consumed at dinner. Now, on a serious note, some of you have terrible nightmares. Terrible nightmares about a past traumatic experience, something that happened in war or something that happened in your childhood. 
And I think you can find comfort in the justice of God and the sovereignty of God. I have heard preachers do what I think is an injustice, a misuse to this particular text. Mark Driscoll preached this chapter talking about, and, and this is one of his applications, talking about how he had a vision that he should preach on a certain Sunday that he wasn't scheduled to preach because it was going to be a high attendance Sunday and someone, a visitor, would come in and drop a very large check in the offering to help further Mark's online reach. Friend, this dream doesn't give credence to abuse people with your dreams. This dream is, is not about you fulfilling your agenda. It's about God fulfilling His agenda. So what does this dream have to do with your dreams? I'd say nothing. Question number two. What does this text teach me about mental illness? I listened to faithful expositor Vadi Bauckham preach this text. He's a, a, closely associated with the Founders Ministry, Shepherds Conference. And in true Vaudy style, he preached three messages from this chapter. One entire message with mental illness and, and how Daniel 4 speaks to mental illness. And he even went off on some real interesting tangents about chemical imbalances and how there's no actual test to prove you're chemically imbalanced, that someone just says you're chemically imbalanced. And lots of things. Let me just make this clear. I don't think this chapter touches mental illness at all. Nebuchadnezzar's sickness, after all, is a direct judgment of God, not a natural occurring phenomenon. So unless you're saying that all mental illness is God's judgment, which of course would, would be foolish, I don't see pulling any truths about mental illness from this passage. Now, I have a lot of opinion on, on a lot of mental health issues. I just don't have thus saith the Lord from this text. So I've given you two questions and um, not given you an answer for any of them. So let's go for question number three. How does this text point us to Jesus? Now, I think I can answer this one. And it's all wrapped up in the theme of trees. Consider trees in the Bible. The first trees were where? The first trees were in the Garden of, of Eden with Adam and Eve. And there's actually one specific tree that they believed that could make you like God. So that's Genesis, Garden of Eden tree. In Daniel, we find this massive worldwide tree. I mean, it's filling up the world. And this tree is alluring Nebuchadnezzar with the same promises. In both stories, people are confronted with a tree that promises they can become like God. One commentator notes, Nebuchadnezzar is like Adam and Eve, who when confronted with another tree, instead of becoming gods, he was banished from Eden. So we've done a little comparison here between Genesis and Daniel with trees. Now let's, let's do a comparison with, with Daniel and the gospel records with the theme of trees. In Daniel, God sent one to cut down a tree. In the gospels, God sent one to hang on a tree. In Daniel, one was driven from his kingdom and lived like an animal. In the gospels, one willingly left his kingdom to be treated like an animal. And Daniel, one's nails were like bird's claws and hair matted like eagle's feathers. He didn't look human. In the Gospels, they beat Jesus so badly, he looked more like wild animal than human being. Friends, for the rest of your life, you will face trees that give you all sorts of promises 
But ultimately, your deepest need is met in one tree, where Jesus died to redeem your filthy soul. Repent of your sin and run to this Christ. Question number four. Could Daniel 4 happen to me? I think that's a legitimate question. Could Daniel 4 happen to me? Yes. Yes. You strut before this God in pride, he will cut you down to a stump. God can take away everything you have in a minute. Money, health, relationships, influence, job, status. He is large and in charge. This chapter shows you that you have nothing to be prideful about. Nebuchadnezzar, you're a great tree. But not because you deserved it. Because I made you that way. God not only proclaims himself sovereign, he also declares that he grants kingdoms to whoever he wills. There is no human factor. Don't be like Nebi. Don't think that what you are is really under your control. You did not choose your race, your gender, the parents to which you were born, the century you were born. You had nothing to do with the fact that your birth did not occur in the 14th century Europe during the bubonic plague. And you say, well, Kyle, I've worked hard. With what? The ability that God has given you? Well, the, the reason I'm doing better than everyone else is because I work harder and I work smarter. Friend, pride is that which claims to be the author of something that is a sheer gift. Pride is cosmic plagiarism. You didn't pick your genes. And pride is a, a sub-theme of the chapter, main theme, God's sovereignty, sub-theme, pride. You can't receive grace if you spiritually don't think you need it. You have to wake up to your own delusions. Don't be like LeVar Ball, who said, I've never been humbled. God bends our stiff necks and pushes our faces to the ground because that's where the streams of life are flowing. I've spent, I've spent time on the negative on this particular point. But let me, let me transition to the positive. Could Daniel 4 happen to you? Just, just as God could take everything away from you in a minute, God can restore everything you've lost in a minute. Think about this. When did God claim Nebi? When did God save Nebuchadnezzar? Not when he was a ruling king, but when he was a raging animal. And this sequence helps us to kill that lie that we can earn God's smile. If God reaches Nebi, he can reach anyone. Though we may have sinned greatly, you have not out God's mercy. The old song says, the vilest offender who truly believes. You can come to the cross. Question number five. This is what I've received. Question number five. Kyle, why do you preach so much about God's sovereignty and so little on evangelism? Because this is a text about a guy trusting Christ as a savior, right? Nebuchadnezzar, he's, he's being redeemed. So why not make this text about evangelism and, and not God's sovereignty? God's sovereignty is perhaps one of the greatest evangelistic tools we have. It is precisely when we realize that God is God that evangelism begins. Pat Morley says it this way. There is a God we want, and then there is a God who is. And the two are not the same. 
During the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards commented on how frequently the doctrine of God's sovereignty was used to bring about spiritual conversions. He, he said, and I quote, I think that I have found no discourses have been more remarkably blessed than those on the doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty with regard to the salvation of sinners. End quote. Isn't that interesting? Because we're usually told today the problem with your type of church is you believe in God's sovereignty and that's going to keep you from doing evangelism. But it's really the other way around, isn't it? God's sovereignty is His great evangelistic tool. My goal with every text is to expose you to this God and may this God make you tremble. I'm not giving you sob stories or clever ways of saying things. I'm not trying to make you tremble. I'm trying to show you this God through His Word and it make you tremble. Because you're never going to be converted unless you first tremble. Question number six. Did Nebi really get saved? Did Nebi really get saved? As Nebuchadnezzar exits the game, the last words on his lips are these. Verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride he is able to humble. But have we not heard this honestly from Nebuchadnezzar in the past? After chapter 1, after chapter 2, after chapter 3. He said similar things but the very next chapter proved that it was temporary. He was never truly converted. But we have no next chapter for Nebi after chapter 4. And words just don't seem to matter sometimes. Just listen to every country song on the radio where they sing about God but then live like the devil. Listen to every rapper thank God for the music award and then sing about everything that's anti-God. We leave chapter 4 wanting to see from Nebi some life change. I like to say it's kind of like Kanye. Just waiting to see this thing play out. Did he really get saved? Did Nebi really get saved? Scholars fight this out. And I thought about presenting both sides of the argument. Scholars were going back and forth fighting. Don't worry, nobody gets hurt. when Scholars fight. Nobody's going home hurt. My advice to you is this. Don't worry about his salvation. Worry about your own salvation. When God cuts down a tree, it's meant to get your attention. And when God cut down his son, it was meant to get your soul. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.